Welcome to today's podcast, Understanding the Blockchain, featuring expert John Collins, head of Red Flag Consulting USA, who is here to help answer some recurring questions about blockchain technology and digital currency. John is a subject matter expert in emergent payment systems and a public policy professional at the local, state, national, and international level, with over 10 years of experience in policymaking, project management, and public affairs. Good morning, John. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks very much. Let's start with a quick overview of blockchain technology. What exactly is the blockchain? So I, there's a lot of terminology used uh, out there that I think it confuses people. And, and blockchain technology is just a term to describe a method by which a ledger or a record of transactions is kept. And it allows this ledger to have participants adding to it from across the world, and it ensures that the data that is added to it is always correct and valid. So think about an Excel spreadsheet that has millions of people adding to it, but you're guaranteed that someone uh, isn't deleting lines or adding lines that aren't correct. So the term blockchain itself actually describes how those transactions or those additions to this ledger uh, are verified, which is simply that the transactions are bundled in blocks and they're verified or processed by other users, which you sometimes hear called miners uh, in terms of Bitcoin blockchain. Um, and those verified transactions are done via batches or blocks of transactions. And so once a block is verified, it's then added to the chain of all the other transactions that happens uh, before it. So block and chain. Uh, blockchain technology is what underlies and allows Bitcoin to work. And it's also inspired companies and organizations to develop uh, kind of proprietary or closed loop, if you will, blockchain applications for certain uses, and then other, let's call it blockchain-inspired architecture that's not really a blockchain, but it's similar, that's called a distributed ledger. So you hear all of these various things, but that's, that's really the key difference. I mean, at the end of the day, it's just a totally decentralized, meaning that one party or person uh, is not in control of it, record that is trustless and verifiable and uh, secure from, from being changed. Okay, great. Makes sense. And blockchain can be used across a variety of industries, correct? What are some of those usages? So, again, any organization industry that deals with a lot of records or data that may be split amongst different users or organizations or even regions of the world, that's a potential use case for this technology. Um, again, like the real value here is the trustless part. You know, guaranteeing trust is actually really expensive. So, you know, finance obviously is, is a major potential use case. You know, specifically, if you look at something like trade finance, which is, you know, how uh, trades of goods across the world are, um, are guaranteed and financed. You know, it's very heavy on paperwork, very heavy on compliance. Theoretically, that could be automated. It could be simplified. It could be sped up um, using blockchain technology. Um, healthcare, you know, insurance authorization, there are another use case, you know, again, where data is being passed amongst others and you need to ensure the integrity of it across the line. Uh, and then as we start to talk about um, artificial intelligence, driverless cars, where you may have devices that are transacting with one another, either financially or otherwise, that's another potential use case. Um, there's probably not one industry that someone hasn't said blockchain can help out. I think probably in a lot of those cases, uh, they may be wrong, but that's why you have R&D, you have new startups, and, and a lot of really smart people that are uh, trying new ventures and, and testing things out um, at this point. And what are some of the benefits uh, of using blockchain technology in, in comparison to some of the legacy systems that are being used today? So again, I think it's that, that automating the trust aspect that, that's really interesting and, and really wasn't allowed for. And, you know, this is 
this technology, it, it, it does a lot of things, but it's, you know, it, it combines sort of computer science, really serious game theory problems. Um, and so the, the you know, automation um, and creation of this trustless environment is, is something that's really novel. Um, it also distributes risk from a single point of failure. Again, you know, if you have a number of individuals that are securing transactions rather than just one server or one organization, that's also, uh, you know, one of the main benefits uh, in comparison to legacy systems. So are there corresponding risks to using the blockchain as well? So I don't know if risk is the right word, but, you know, at this point, uh, it's kind of a bulky way to do things. So, you know, in some cases, a regular database or even a group of databases architected in a novel or interesting way might be better than, you know, the sort of blockchain architecture that powers you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum. Um, you know, there, there's a limit on how many transactions can be done, it can be slow. Um, so it, it's risk probably isn't the right word, but there are certainly things that may not make it the best technology in all cases. Uh, but again, you have a lot of people that are, are architecting new solutions, new types of, of, of verification of transactions on blockchains. Um, and, you know, I think development in the space is going to continue over certainly the next five or 10 years, and you'll likely see performance improvements either across the board or, or for specific use cases. Okay, great. And you mentioned Bitcoin and Ethereum. What exactly is the relationship between blockchain technology and these digital currencies? So, you know, obviously most people have heard of Bitcoin. Now I think uh, most people over the past year have heard of Ethereum. Litecoin is another digital currency, Zcash, Monero. There's, there's, there's a lot of them out there. Um, but one of the things that blockchain technology allows for, and frankly why it was designed in the first place um, for Bitcoin, is what we call digital currencies, or, or really the, the term of art that might be more appropriate are, are digital assets, which is actually like probably the most fascinating idea and, and the not most novel idea in that if you think about sort of how files um, or let's call them digital assets have traditionally worked on the internet, you know, I would create a Word document or I'd create an Excel spreadsheet and I would save it on my computer and then I would send it to you um, and you would have a copy of it. Um, I would also have a copy of it. Um, that doesn't allow for uh, you know, an actual transfer. Um, what, what blockchain technology allows for is, is you know, if I create a digital file or I have a digital file um, that when I send it to you, I no longer retain it and you retain it, uh, which was not allowed, was not, um, was not uh, allowed before that. Uh, and so what that allows for is, is a currency use case. It allows for um, much like if you were transferring, you know, cash or a gold bar from one person to another, you no longer retain it. Um, that's what that's what blockchain technology um, allows for in terms of digital currencies. And that's the intersection between the two. And these currencies, they're traded on an exchange, just like fiat currency. Yeah. So um, there are a number of ways in which you can. Um, you know, obtain a digital currency if you want to obtain a digital currency. The primary way is you would go to a, a company like Coinbase, which is my former employer, um, and they, you, know, you would link up your bank account and you would, um, you know, buy Bitcoin for whatever the market rate happens to be. Um, there are a number of other exchanges across the world in the United States and elsewhere uh, that are pure spot exchanges that, you know, people are, are trading on um, every single day. Um, 
you know, in the early days of Bitcoin, uh, the early days of, you know, even Ethereum, you know, people would set up mining rigs or, or mining systems, which, again, is just sort of the um, way in which those transactions are verified is, is by users who decide to contribute some amount of computing power to, um, to verify those transactions. And the economic incentive to do that is that Every so often, some new bitcoins uh, are generated, and they are um, given um, at random to to the individuals who are contributing that computing power. Um, that is a very difficult way to get Bitcoin now, just because there is so uh, much computing power, and, and it's really been industrialized, frankly, um, with really, really, really large mining operators. Um, so it's a very difficult way if you just want to plug in your laptop and uh, try to mine Bitcoin in your apartment to do that. But, um, you know, some people do. Okay. And one of the most popular currencies of Bitcoin, I'm going to split or what's called a hard fork in August. What does that mean? So, you know, I think the important thing to when you hear about Bitcoin, you hear about Ethereum, you know, it is not only a currency, it's a network of computers and it's also a, a protocol. And, um, protocols have rules that are set by the developers who work on the, the code that powers it. You know, they're constantly making improvements and um, fixing things that may, may be problematic. And um, there's long been a debate in the, you know, Bitcoin community around, you know, what actually is, is the potential of this technology? Is it simply a, um, a digital gold or is it, um, can it be sort of a decentralized worldwide visa network, um, like a payment network? And um, there are very, for a number of different reasons, some of them ideological and, and some of them, I think, probably economically incentivized, very different interpretations of, of, of the direction um, that, that some of the developers and some of the major players in the industry think it should go. And so, again, I talked a little bit about sort of how blockchain technology, one of the you know, downsides at this point is that, you know, there are limits on the amount of transactions that can happen. So, you know, if, if you can only allow for um, 10 transactions uh, a second, that's not going to, to work as a decentralized payment system uh, for the world. Um, so there, have, there, there was a move to um, basically allow for more transactions um, to occur uh, that was um, fostered by certain members of the community. Um, other members of the, the community were against it, I think, for a number of different reasons. But, but one of the stated arguments was that it puts an enormous amount of influence and power in the hands of, um, you know, what I talked about in terms of the industrial miners, um, many of whom are in China. Um, so the ideological you know, argument against um, allowing for this, this change in, in, in more transactions lies with folks who really want to keep it distributed and decentralized and um, not allow for uh, changes to be made simply at the whim of, you know, large mining companies or, or cartels of mining companies. So um, what happens is, uh, you know, the, the protocol works by the users that participate in it. And um, a certain number of users decided they wanted to play by different rules uh, than the others. Um, and when that happens, it creates a, a new protocol. It creates sort of a, a breaking of, of the chain. And um, when a new protocol is, uh, uh, is created, then you have a new digital currency that then 
comes with it. Um, again, you know, it's kind of, uh, think about it sort of like the Holy Trinity. Um, it's a protocol, it's a network and it's a currency. And so, uh, that happened, uh, and, um, you know, it remains to be seen sort of how this, this new currency, which is being called Bitcoin cash, um, will play out. There are some markets that are, that are allowing for the trading of it. Um, but you know, it remains to be seen whether, um, it will continue to be traded, whether it will you know, continue to go up in value or down in value. It just, it, it's, it's really not clear. And this had happened earlier with Ethereum as well. It had uh, a fork as well. How did that play out? Yeah. So in, 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 with Ethereum, you know, and the key difference between Ethereum and, and Bitcoin is that, I mean, Ethereum's newer. It's, it's more programmable, I guess. It has a, has a more, um, what I would say, kind of organized, centralized uh, kind of development team that, that, that works on it. Um, okay. And it also allows for, for smart contracts. And so a smart contract is, you know, the simplest smart contract you could think of is um, a vending machine. So, uh, you know, you put a dollar into a vending machine and the compute, you put in a code and the computer knows to, you know, give you potato chips or a, a Snickers bar um, in exchange. Um, that's a really simple smart contract. Um, and Ethereum allows for smart contracts where you can kind of program money to do certain things if certain conditions are met, um, which uh, is a really interesting idea. Um, but one of the things that, that happened early in Ethereum's uh, existence was this, uh, what was called the DAO or the Digital uh, Autonomous Organization um, that was uh, intended to sort of be a decentralized um, kind of venture um, uh, crowdfunding effort. Uh, and uh, through a number of different sort of very technical uh, uh, opportunities that a, a hacker took, uh, I think there was over a hundred million dollars easily in, in put into this organization that was basically lifted from the network. Uh, the way in which it was recovered was that Ethereum split. Uh, they changed the rules of the protocol in order to basically recover the, recover the funds. And so then what was created was um, uh, Ethereum, uh, which is the, the, the continued protocol. And the, the, the old one was called Ethereum Classic. Um, in that case, uh, Ethereum Classic actually continued to um, have uh, buyers and sellers uh, and exchanges that are willing to allow for the trading of it. Um, and uh, you know, the price went up quite a bit. It's gone down quite a bit. To be honest with you, I don't I don't know what it is today, but um, it continues to be to be out there, mostly being used um, for exchange trading um, more than anything else. Very interesting. So with the exchange trading and these smart contracts, what are some of the ways in which you see digital currency evolving maybe over the next five to 10 years? So it's hard to say. I think, um, I think you're going to continue to see more advanced um, kind of financial products being um, used uh, on the investment side. You know, I think at some point you probably will see some sort of exchange traded funds, um, you'll see sort of more sophisticated, um, you know, trading techniques and products that are that are offered by by certain companies. Um, I think you know you're already seeing the, the the increased number of what are called initial coin offerings that will continue. Um, but I think I think 
know, there continues to be a, um, you know, a real debate amongst uh, the industry about, you know, how can we use this power for good, basically? You know, what, what are the what are the killer use cases? And if it's not going to be a payment network, then, you know, perhaps it is just a digital goal and it becomes sort of a, you know, a digital safe, safe haven asset that, that people invest in. Um, and so uh, I think, I think the, it just remains to be seen. Uh, but what you do see is increased investment from, you know, traditional players. You see, you know, tons of banks and other financial institutions that are investing a ton of resources, both in terms of mind share and financial. So um, it certainly has all of the making of, of a lot of things that probably we can't even uh, conceive of today, uh, likely being part of the ecosystem in, in five to ten years. Absolutely. And being that this is a relatively new and growing product space, what are some of the challenges that policymakers are facing when dealing with digital currencies and blockchain technology? So the, the traditional approach with, with regulators and actually U.S. Treasury Department was was kind of a, a was truly a global leader in, in trying to sort of harness, especially the AML KYC aspect of of the technology. I mean, AML KYC is anti money laundering and, and know your customer, which you know banks and other financial institutions um, have to implement with customers who want to interact with the financial system to prevent money laundering, prevent terrorist financing, to protect, protect any number of other things that people want to use the financial system to, to do bad things with. Um, the, the Treasury Department basically said, look, at the exchange point, uh, the intersection between fiat currency, government-issued currency, and digital currencies, you need to have these these um, AML KYC procedures in place. You know, You need to know who your customer is. You have to do due diligence on them, et cetera. Um, when the network itself, once you get in the network, there aren't necessarily those same those same controls. I think as you see the um, the uh, the industry continue to evolve, as adoption continues to grow, you know you're already seeing policymakers in Europe talk about the identification of digital currency wallets and requiring identification of those digital currency wallets. I think that's going to continue to be something that policymakers are trying to, to tackle over the next, um, you know, coming years. I think, too, um, you know, ICOs are certainly, um, as you see, an enormous amount of money being invested by individuals um, to these, you know, initial coin offerings. I think that presents some serious concerns um, for policymakers, both from a consumer protection standpoint, you know, making sure that people who are uh, investing this money know what they're doing uh, and that they're not being lied to. Uh, and I think on the, the other hand, um, in terms of whether or not they are securities, uh, as we traditionally understand the securities to be, uh, what is the obligation of the people that issue these um, tokens or, or ICOs uh, to register as a as a securities broker um, to follow the rules that that traditionally have been followed. Um, so I think I think that's the um, that's those are the two sort of things that I would probably say are, are probably on the, the minds of policymakers right now. But but again, you know, digital assets it's it's a new concept um, and it allows for a lot of different things and um, it probably requires policymakers to be. Uh, a bit more nimble and a bit more open to allowing for iteration, allowing for 
um, space for innovation to grow while at the same time making sure that citizens are being taken advantage of. Um, it's, it's, it's a really delicate balance and, and one that, um, that I think a lot of policymakers are, are struggling with. Um, but I think focused, again, really on keeping it sort of technology neutral, uh, focused, on, um, focused on creating that sort of nurturing environment for innovation. So are there any existing U.S. or international laws governing blockchain? Yeah, so, um, you know, in the case of the U.S., there's been guidance from FinCEN, which is the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network at Treasury. They administer the Bank Secrecy Act. Um, that they put in place, I talked about this in 2013, saying that digital currency exchanges needed to have all the same AML KYC requirements that you know you would you would have at a bank or other financial institution. Um, the uh, the EU followed up just basically this past year, um, replicating that. Australia, Japan have done have done the same. Um, I think in terms of of you know, most of the, the attention has been spent uh, on um, on the digital currency aspect of it, not so much sort of the blockchain. I think a lot of policymakers talk about blockchain technology, especially you know if you want to look at these proprietary systems that are being developed for um, financial uh, companies and, and other organizations. Um, there has, has been mostly a move to, to kind of keep it keep it arm's length. You know, I think they're paying attention to the development of the ecosystem, but have not set the need in terms of those systems to uh, step in, um, mostly because it's, it's basically sort of a modernization of what's already done. Uh, now, I think some of the questions that may come up down the line are, you know, this is a new way to verify and store data. Are we making sure all the same protections that, that we've put into place, especially in Europe, um, continue uh, to be applied um, with this new technology, um, I think that's that's likely the, the question that will come up down the line. But likely won't happen until you really start seeing, you know, these these uh, applications move out of a proof of concept phase, out of an R&D phase, and actually move into like a real kind of uh, you know, production. So you mentioned Japan has a more established legal framework for blockchain and the financial sector and EU countries are kind of determining their own requirements independently. Where do you see areas that are working versus those that aren't? I think, um, you know, I, I think the, the, the Japan case is, is really, you know, they were, they were early on and that was really driven by the fact that Mt. Gox, which it, you know, many people may have heard of, may have not, was a major, major, major early digital currency exchange, Bitcoin exchange, that um, went under. Uh, a lot of people lost uh, a lot of Bitcoin, a lot of, a lot of money. And so they put into place um, after that uh, some, some pretty stringent requirements around, around the operation of those, of those exchanges. Uh, very similar to sort of what, what the U.S. did. I think, I think there's, there's two things that, that, are, um, that I think maybe aren't working necessarily or, or that you likely will see sort of more attention one on, I think, as people continue to use these exchanges, and especially if you're going to start seeing sort of more novel uh, or uh, different um, trading products used on these exchanges, you're likely going to see more scrutiny of the exchanges by regulators in terms of ensuring you know market fairness and transparency, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, I think, too, the states in the U.S., most of these businesses, if not all of them, are uh, considered money transmitters in the states in which they operate. Um, and you see this kind of discussion happening in the larger fintech concepts beyond just the blockchain or digital currency vertical. You know, how can states um, sort of modernize uh, their money transmission statutes uh, for the digital currency era? Uh, there are certain requirements that, that make sense uh, in terms of, of digital currency exchanges or platforms, and there are some that, that, that really don't. Um, and so you have a number of, of, uh, of groups like the Uniform Law Commission that have developed sort of a model uh, bill for states to develop. And I think that is likely over the next probably two to three years going to be where a lot of the action is. And do you foresee the differences in these legal frameworks creating problems for international trade? Uh, you know, I think there is, um, I wouldn't say that there's necessarily problems for international trade. What I do think, and this is certainly in the context of digital currency, but I think it can be applied to the larger financial technology space, is that, you know, the internet is inherently uh, global, right? It's, it's borderless, which is not how national authorities have constructed regulatory schemes for financial services to work. It's very um, focused on region. It's very focused on, um, you know, countries' borders. And so, as regulators think about this technology, uh, it creates a lot of new questions in terms of um, how how do um, how do regulators uh, talk to each other? How do they harmonize um, what they're doing in order to be sort of most effective? And so, you see a lot of discussion being driven around this from the Financial Stability Board, from the Basel Committee and others. Um, and again, this is this is something that I think goes well beyond um, the digital currency and blockchain space, but but into sort of the larger financial technology space. And if you look back at in the early 90s, the Clinton administration, um, and then Europe following that created um, sort of an e-commerce framework. You know, there was a recognition that the internet itself was really interesting, had a lot of potential. And what um, policymakers at that time did is they agreed that they would sort of have a principle-based regulatory scheme as they approach the internet and the products that came from it. And it was based around sort of allowing for innovation, around protecting consumers, et cetera. And my guess is, and my hope is, frankly, is that you're, you'll see global regulators do something similar specifically for financial technology, you know, uh, a, a sort of broad-based, principle-based uh, regulatory uh, theme or framework. Uh, for approaching this, these new products. Definitely makes sense. Uh, and due to the heightened interest in using blockchain and the benefits that you mentioned earlier, do you have any suggestions for organizations that are looking to implement blockchain into their daily business operations? No, I mean, I think, you know, there is there is so much energy and expertise um, and resources being poured into this space right now in, you know, Every industry from financial services to healthcare to mobility to real estate. Um, I think the you know the, the the first thing that people should do is you know do some reading, do a little bit of research, um, look at sort of you know what are the, the sort of architectures that they're they're using for their you know business or particular operation. You know, are they working? Are they not? You know, blockchain may be the the 
the solution for them now. It may be the solution for them 10 years from now, or it might not be a solution for them at all. But um, I would say do a little bit of research and then um, uh, really kind of think about sort of um, what are the what are the real kind of benefits that they want to they want to gain from it in the short term. Very helpful. Thank you very much, John. And for further information, please check online on the platform and look for the monthly publication featuring John Collins' expertise. A special thank you to John for his insight today, and thank you for tuning in to the Rain Blockchain Podcast.